0: Hey, Junior here. Thanks for hitting play. Today we're talking about my favorite topic, Jesus. No, really, we're just going to get to know him better. I think you'll find this refreshing, fascinating, and fun. Stick with. Born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then, for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never owned a home. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He had nothing to do with this world except the naked power of his divine manhood. While still a young man, the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. His executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on the earth while he was dying. That was his coat. When he was dead, he was taken down, and laid in a borrowed grave for the pity of a friend. Nineteen wide centuries have come and gone, and today he is the centerpiece of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. I'm far within the mark when I say that all the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as that one solitary life, Jesus Christ. James Francis Allen, 1926. Who was this man who split the fabric of time? B C A D. His story gives us the greatest holidays this world celebrates. I mean, who is this guy that today every time I flick my phone screen on, it screams, it's been 2021 years since he came. It's been 2021 since his arrival. Who is this guy? And Today we've come to that part of the creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. It's someone we just can't stop talking about, and we won't. Oh, today's gonna to be so much fun. Luke chapter one is where we're at today. Luke chapter one. Really encourage you to grab a Bible. We got Bibles in the chairs. One of the things that I I mean, one of the many things I loved about pre-COVID is uh, we had Bibles in the chairs for I mean, just for years. We'd always grab a Bible and we'd have Bibles in our hands, and it just made me feel more connected with you during this time. Then when we had COVID, we kind of got rid of the Bibles, and then everyone's just looking up here at the screen. I didn't like that as much. I love it when you have the Bible in your hands. There's just there's something to that. So if you didn't bring a Bible, I encourage you to grab one in the chairs. Otherwise, phones, we have the bridge app, we also have notes on there there. We got our notes back in the bulletin, so you can jot down some notes. In fact, I would encourage you to take some notes because today's sermon, just a little bit of a heads up, today's message is going to be different than maybe normal, especially different from last week. We're going to get a little bit more technical, a little bit more theological today, a little bit more, uh, I don't know, seminary classroom style. Um, So I'd really encourage you to jot some of these bigger terms down. Um, We're going to have some fun with it, but I would, I really would encourage you to take some notes. We've been in this series called Creed as we've been looking at the Apostles' Creed. And what I I like to just put it this way, we've been looking at the load-bearing walls of our faith. Uh, Christians can disagree about little different things here and there, but when it comes to the essentials, the load-bearing walls of our faith, that's what this creed covers. And so that's what we're doing for these next few weeks. Let me pray. We'll jump right into it. God, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for who you are, all-powerful, almighty. We thank you for Jesus Christ. God, I, I think that I speak for everyone in here. I want to say, I think we, we feel like we know of Jesus quite a bit. I pray that you give us a fresh perspective on who Jesus was and is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as the lens of Scripture zooms in on Luke one twenty six, a tiny hill comes into view. A few dozen homes and caves pepper the Rocky Hill, beautiful view of the valley from up there. But it's this little town on this hill that's the brunt of all the local jokes. It's those backwoods hillbillies who are still dwelling in caves up there. No-name town, Nazareth. Up on the hill, inside one of the makeshift homes that jet out of one of the caverns, sits a teen girl. From the outside, she's a typical teen girl, a girl who had her crushes, a girl who had dreams of making her own home one day, having her own family one day. She loves jokes, and she loves music, she loves walking to the peak of the hill to overlook the beautiful valley below her town. Today is just a typical day in the hill. Most of the men, including her fiancé, have walked a few miles down to the neighboring town of Sephora for work. It's mainly the women on the hill today, repairing the never-ending cracks in the walls, the cooking and the teaching of the children, the hanging of the laundry in the Middle Eastern sun. As Mary finds herself alone doing housework, life, not just hers, but life for everyone, is about to change. Luke puts it this way in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, the sixth month does not mean June. The context is is Luke in chapter 1 is talking about Mary's cousin's pregnancy. So it's the sixth month of Mary's cousin's pregnancy. An angel named Gabriel is sent to Nazareth. And notice what Luke writes, the city in Galilee. He says this because most of the readers who would have read this at this time would have read this and gone, what's a Nazareth? i have never heard of Nazareth. And so Luke is saying, well, it's a a city in Galilee. It's just a a little podunk town. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now something very, very, very important to the Christian faith is lodged right here in this verse. It's it's integral to the Apostles' Creed. It's a load-bearing wall to our faith. And it has been attacked and will be attacked. So we're just going to stop here, we're going to camp out here, and we're going to unpack this verse. Virgin is the key word here. It's interesting, in the Apostles' Creed, the Apostles' Creed makes sure to mention Mary as a virgin. Why? I mean, think about it. Jesus turned water to wine, Jesus raised the dead, Jesus walked on water, Jesus fed 5,000, Jesus exercised authority over demons, the creed doesn't mention any of that. Why does it make sure to mention Mary's sexual history? Why does that matter? Well, it matters on a few, for a few different reasons. And the the best place to to start unpacking this is to rewind. Rewind before Jesus, rewind before Mary, rewind to the Old Testament, rewind 700 years before Jesus Christ. The prophet Isaiah wrote this in chapter 7, 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. So God, through Isaiah, tells his people, here's a sign, look for this, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and the son of the virgin is the Messiah that you're looking for. Now, this has come under attack because if you can take away the virgin birth, you take away Jesus's divinity. And we're going to get to that more in just a second. But some have pointed at the Hebrew word for virgin here in Isaiah and said, well, this word uh, has a semantic range. It can mean many different, not many different things, but it can mean a few different things. It doesn't have to mean someone who hasn't had sex. It can just mean a young woman which is true. The original Hebrew word for virgin here is the Hebrew word Alma, which just means young, which can mean young woman. It mainly means virgin, someone who hasn't had sex yet, but it can just mean a young woman. Problem with that argument though, is what kind of a sign is that? Young women give birth to sons all the time. It's not a sign at all. That'd be like me saying, in the suburbs of Chicago, you will find a mom with a bob cut wearing leggings sipping Starbucks. It's like, okay, well, we got millions to pick from here. Can we kind of narrow it down from there? This isn't an ambiguous prophecy, it's very specific, it's very clear. So we've got to understand as we read scripture, words matter context matters. And Isaiah is saying, look for something special. Not a woman giving birth to a son. That's going to happen a million times over. Look for a virgin. That doesn't happen, but it will, and that's your sign. So up in that cave town on the hill sits an elma. Typical day the breeze sweeps over the mountain. She goes about her daily housework. Little does she know that the girl that Isaiah prophesied about, the girl that she read about in Isaiah is her. And even if church isn't your thing, you, you probably know what happens next. Is right there in your Bible. The, the angel says, uh, You found favor with God. The father's choosing you to raise his son. You're going to be pregnant. This is when Mary responds, well, how, is, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Says, and the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. The Son of God. The Holy Spirit will cause you to conceive. It's, it's where this part of the creed comes from. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Now here's the thing. This really, really matters. Far more than we may realize. This isn't a statement that Christians look at and just go, okay, we're accepting this as historically accurate, as historical fact. The theological meaning behind this phrase right here, it carries a lot of weight. Not just because of the prophecy in Isaiah. It's deeper than that. So heads up, this is where we're going to get a little bit more technical, some, some deeper theology, but I, I believe you can stick with those. See, I know, the 11 a.m. service at this Plains is our most intellectual service, so this is going to be like no problem for, for you to, to stick with. I know you got no problem. So here we go. Ready? The reason the virgin birth and the Holy Spirit conception is important to believers is because it affects not just the foretelling of Jesus, but his very identity. Scripture tells us that you and I are born with a sin nature ever since the, the garden of, of, Eden, of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned, and that sin has been passed from generation to generation to generation to generation to you and to me. Now, Jesus did not have a sin nature. Jesus is without sin. He's pure, holy, he's blameless. So how does, how does he get off like that? How, how does he get a pass? Well, the seminary that I went to taught, and I can't confidently back this up with scripture, but this is logical speculation, not a hill I would die on, but it does make sense. Our sin nature is passed on to us from our dad. Scripture says that our inherited sin comes from Adam. Not Eve, Adam. So ladies, next time your child sins, you can just elbow your husband and be like, "Get that from you. You pass that on to him. You parents ever do that? Kid does something and you're like, you look at your spouse like that, that's you. Like the other, the other night we were having dinner and my, my youngest, uh, Reese, she's the exact replica of her mom and uh, Reese is just talking, talking, talking. Talking, talking, talking during dinner, and Nicole looks at me and is like, "Does she ever stop?" I I had to bite my tongue. I was like, "She's you. You guys are interrupting each other right now." My middle child, she's me. A couple years ago, uh, we were at Nicole's family reunion, and everybody is uh, is just talking away and having fun. Talking, talking, talking. I just, I just needed a break. So, at the venue we were at, I, I walked away from everybody, and I found this closet. It's like, I'm just going to go in the closet and rest. So I went in, I turned on the light, I sat down, I look over. My middle child is already there. No joke. She looks at me and says, Dad, I just needed a break. (laughs) Me too, baby. She's me. See, reality is kids get their tendencies from both mom and dad. But many scholars hold to the idea that since sin was passed from Adam, our sin nature is given to us from our dad. Now, again, there's debate over that. But in this context with Mary, it makes sense. Jesus didn't have a sin nature, and it could very well be because his dad is God. So this concept of virgin birth and Holy Spirit conception, it really does matter on many different levels. Prophecy, inherited sin, but also, again, the very identity of Jesus Christ. If Jesus is not conceived by the Holy Spirit, then he's simply a product of human sex, and he's not God. And we really need Jesus to be God. If Jesus is not born of Mary, he's not human, and we really need him to be one of us. We need Jesus to be fully God and fully man. This is one of the first things that false teachings will claim. Jesus wasn't fully God, or Jesus wasn't fully human, but he was both, and we need him to be in 451 AD, about 500 pastors and teachers and theologians got together for what they call the Council of Chalcedon. And uh, I've been trying to figure out what this guy's holding right here, because it looks like an iPhone, and they didn't have iPhones, but it's like the first <laughs> iPhone introduction. 500 though, 500 teachers, pastors, theologians got together for, the, for this council, and the question that they were debating and that they were studying was, who was Jesus. Because Jesus says He's God, but Jesus also says that He's man. So how does this work? Is this like a colossal contradiction when it comes to our faith? It was a big conversation during this time. Five hundred get together, and after accurate study, after you know good debate, the council concluded that Jesus is one person with two natures. We have one nature, a human nature. Jesus had two. He's fully God. He's fully man. And the council explained this with this title right here, called the hypostatic union. Which really clarifies things, doesn't it? You're Like, oh, indubitably, what a great theological nomenclature. Like, Really, hypostatic union, what is this? Hypostatic union just means union of human nature and God's nature together. That's Jesus. Jesus is God who took on skin, accepting limitations, and living among us. Hugely important to our faith. He's fully God, fully man. And this is actually in your notes. Jesus was human. He was human, and this is very important. Joan Osborne was getting at something when she's saying, what if God was one of us? He was. He was born of the Virgin Mary. Philippians 2 puts it this way, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. In other words, Jesus wasn't up in heaven, didn't stay up in heaven saying, no, I need to stay here. I need to be worshiped by the angels. I need to be worshiped by the heavenly host. I have no desire to save sinners from hell and submit. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Jesus goes from heaven's throne to a baby. Jesus was human. And I think a big mistake in Christian art history is how we depict Jesus. I don't know if you've seen these old depictions of, of uh, baby Jesus in like Catholic or Orthodox art. He's freaky. You just look at these. He looks like an itty-bitty man. You notice that? It looks like, like somebody took a man and shrunk him in the dryer. And he's very serious. Looks like an adult. Like, if I had a kid like this, I would sleep with one eye open. <laughs> Something's wrong with that kid. And, and you can tell it's supposed to be Jesus because he's got a halo. Now, if he actually had a halo, people wouldn't have wondered if he's the Messiah. Oh, do you think he's the one? Well, I don't know. Probably got the, he's got the halo, so probably... Traditional Christian art doesn't help with this conversation. Jesus was human. Many don't like to think of Jesus being human. That's why the song, Away in the Manger, says no crying he makes. Well, that's a weird line. But babies don't cry. I want one of those babies. Babies cry. He was human. This is one of the reasons I love uh, the show The Chosen. If you've seen The Chosen at all, you should definitely look it up if you haven't seen the show. I, I love the show so much because it does such a great job with depicting Jesus as being human without taking away his divinity. Uh, there's one scene right now. It's, it's actually kind of under fire from all the, the legalist, Christians, like, strict Christians. Uh, there's a scene where um, Jesus is out in, in, the, in the desert and he meets with John the Baptist and... Uh, John the Baptist is like, hey, you know, what are you doing out here? And he's like, I'm studying for a sermon. He's going to preach a sermon on the mount. He's like, I'm just, I'm just out studying for a sermon. And John the Baptist is like, you study? Like, I just say whatever comes to my head. And Jesus is like, well, that's why they're trying to kill you. I want to be a little bit more crafty with my words. It's a, it's a funny scene, and it's really good, but it's under fire from Christians who are saying, well, Jesus wouldn't have to study because, you know, he was fully God. He's also fully man. And we really struggle to accept that sometimes. Throughout church history, we've really struggled to accept the sacrifice of Jesus putting on skin. And so we depict him as angelic, or we depict him as in weird ways. We make stuff up about him, about not really being a human baby. No, Jesus was human. Jesus had to learn. Luke writes that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. Jesus went to school. He studied. He outgrew his clothes. Through puberty, his voice cracked like the rest of us guys'. Jesus probably got excited when his, his, with his friends when he got that first like peach fuzz above his lip. Pastor Jordan just got that last week. <laughs> He's really excited about that. <laughs> he picks at me too. Jesus cried. Shortest verse in the Bible it says that Jesus wept. He wept over Jerusalem. He cried at his buddy's funeral. Jesus laughed. Many scholars believe that Jesus' teachings were filled just packed with, with, with gut-busting, modern-day relevant humor. And part of the reason that Jesus could, could draw a crowd is he's just, he's funny. He enjoyed laughing. He enjoyed telling jokes. He could get a crowd, uh, ROFL, LMBO. <laughs> He, he nicknamed his, his disciples just funny nicknames. He loved to laugh. He got invited to lots of parties because he was fun. He wasn't one of those stoic, boring Christians. He was fun. Periodically, he would poke fun at the uptight religious legalists. And Jesus had good burns. There was one time, my favorite stories is the religious leaders, they, they come to Jesus in a public way. Jesus is teaching, and the religious leaders come to him, and they call him an illegitimate child. Quickly, you know, they say, you don't even know who your dad is equivalent of being called an SOB, and Jesus fires back, SOB, you're an SOS, son of Satan. That's clever and funny, unless you're the religious guy. But Jesus bled. Jesus ate. Jesus sweat. Jesus worked with his hands. He slept. I like to think of Jesus as an introvert, because he would get away periodically just to recharge his batteries. He was human, and that matters. Often when I mention this kind of stuff in sermons, I get emails from from good people, but who just struggle with this because they come from more traditional churches and traditional churches tend to minimize Jesus' humanity. No, Jesus wasn't really human, he was like a creepy baby. Very serious and somber and sad. It's like, well that's sad because Jesus is our older brother. He's someone that we look up to. He's someone that we wanna be like. I don't wanna be like those pictures. Jesus was fun, he was human he lived among us he wrestled with what we wrestle with he won every time he's our example and scripture is clear jesus was fully human it was part of his sacrifice and to minimize his humanity is to minimize the sacrifice he made just by coming here on top of all that though we theologically we need him to be human because he represents us before god 1st timothy 2:5 says for there is one god and there is one mediator between god and man look at this the man christ jesus Jesus is the go-between because he was one of us. Jesus can mediate for us. It's actually why we pray in Jesus' name, amen, at the end of a prayer. Uh, we, We pray that because we approach the throne through Jesus' name. He's our mediator. And in order to mediate, he's fully God so he can approach God, but he's also fully man. He can go on our behalf and represent us. And that matters. I didn't put this in your notes, but it might be worth jotting down. If we deny the humanity of Jesus, we lose our advocate to God. If we deny his humanity, we're losing our advocate. The truth is, you look throughout Scripture, Jesus hurt like we hurt. He faced hardship like we faced hardship. He was tempted like we've been tempted. He was victorious every time. And because of that, we have an advocate who can sympathize with our struggle. When we're down, Jesus can sympathize with that, and he can take it to God. But when we diminish his humanity... We lose that awesome truth of having an advocate. Jesus was human. That matters a lot. But he was and is God. He wasn't his God. Jesus' existence didn't start in Luke 1 at conception. Jesus was God before that. Jesus was there when all of this was spoken into existence. He's not a good man you who know, somehow achieved godlike status. A lot of religions will say that. Well, Jesus was like so good, he became God. God just like adopted him into the Trinity. Hey, you're so good, you're like me, welcome to the team. It's adoptionism. Historically, Mormons have held to the adoptionism. You know, Jesus was so good, he just became divinity. That's not true, that's not possible. It's actually the first lie Satan tells in the garden, if you remember that. Remember what we told Eve? You can become like God, that's not true. God always was. You can't become him, but he did become us, Jesus Christ. This is why the Holy Spirit conception in Luke 1 is important. It was prophesied about in regards to uh, inherited sin, and then fully God, fully man, his very identity. Jesus was not the product of two fallen humans who then overcame his humanity. He came from heaven through the Holy Spirit to the womb. Man did not become God, like many religions say. No, God becomes man. And that is everything to us. See, if we deny the divinity of Jesus, we lose our bridge to God. If we deny his divinity, then we lose our bridge. Our sin, when we walked away from God, it created this massive gap between us and God. And there's nothing humans can do to cross that gap. It would be like going over to Lake Michigan. I'm hoping to go out there today. We have a guy in our church who owns a sailboat. He wants to take me out there. It's supposed to storm. But he's going to take me a few miles out into Lake Michigan. And we're going to come back. Like, I'm excited for that. There's no way we could jump over that. Like if we all lined up on the beach and decide, okay, we're going to try to jump over the lake. Like some of us would get further than others, sure. But none of us would even get close at all. It's the same with our gap between us and God. There's, there's none of us can jump bridge that gap. No human can. Isaiah says, all of your good works are like filthy rags. God is the only one who can bridge the gap. So if we deny Jesus's divinity, then we got no bridge. We have no salvation. We have no heaven. We are destined for eternity and hell where we belong with what we deserve. Jesus was and is God, and that matters. He's fully man. He's our advocate to the throne. He's also fully God, our bridge. See, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. You see how this, this carries a lot of theological weight. Continue on. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. Was crucified, died, and was buried. Why is Pontius Pilate in here? I kind of feel bad for the guy. Like, he, he wasn't completely sold on Jesus Christ. I'm reading a book on him right now. and just part, Again, part of me feels bad for him. He's just under this immense political pressure to make a decision he didn't want to make. Not sure he was a coward and sure he didn't lead, but why, why are we putting him in this creed? Because it's this portion of the creed that provides an anchored history. See, our faith isn't like the beginning of Star Wars ah, in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> In Neverland, you know, once upon a time. No, this is tied to history. If you don't believe the details, look them up. If you're rejecting the details, you probably haven't even done enough study. Look it up. Pilate was the fifth Judean prefect from AD 26 to AD 36. This is where Jesus was crucified. This is where and when. I mean, Luke writes in Acts 26, he's like, investigate. These things weren't done in the corner. The suffering and the death of Jesus was public, it was out in the open. So we invite investigation. If you don't believe this, go check it out. Here's the anchor. Look up Pontius Pilate. It all happened under him. Crucified. So we've come to the cross. Something that has been neutered throughout history through art. You know, the cross was never art, it was never a charm on a piece of jewelry, it was never gathered around by God's people, it was never a tattoo. I'm not saying those things are wrong, I enjoy those, but historically the cross was just a barbaric symbol of fear. It was invented by the Persians, it was perfected by the Romans, and the Romans had a lot of practice. When Herod the Great died, uh, this is the Herod of the Christmas story, you know, the king who killed all the baby boys, and then Jesus and his family fled to Egypt. When Herod died, there was a rebellion in Galilee, northern Israel, and in order to extinguish the rebellion, Rome crucified 2,000 people. 2,000! It was around this time Jesus and his family were coming back from Egypt to Galilee to live. Imagine that, being Mary and Joseph returning from Egypt to raise their new boy. And as they're walking through Galilee, they're seeing cross after cross after cross after cross after cross. Jesus literally lived his life in the shadow of the cross. His best friend wrote this in John 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Flogged. Romans called this whip the cat of nine tails. It's, it's leather, leather strips with stone embedded, meant to bruise, to draw the blood to the surface of the skin. I, I don't mean to gross you out, but it, it, it's, it's a lot like tenderizing meat. The second whip would be the same, only embedded. What well, wasn't stones or beads or any of that. It was bone and glass and nails meant to grip and to tear exposing organs. Some historians wrote that it was not uncommon for ribs to just fly off during the process, even for eyes to be gouged out if the whip got your face. And again, I don't say this to gross you out or shock you, but this is the sacrifice that Jesus went through for you. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Two years ago, I was just south of Jerusalem with a a bunch of bridge people, And I spoke under a a, a bush, and uh, afterward, one of the ladies, I didn't even notice, but one of the ladies in the group pointed out to me, look at the thorns on on this bush. And and I hate to zoom in, because the only picture we have is of my ugly mug, but you just look at these, look at these thorns. Uh, They twist, they're easily, the the vine is able to bend, they twist, it could easily be made into a crown. I I grew up just assuming that, when we talk about the crown of thorns, I'm thinking like rose, you know, rose bush thorns, no. It's these. These thorns would fully pierce the skin and grip the skull. The crown of them he hammered on to ensure maximum pain, but also to be able to stay on throughout the crucifixion process. They crucified him with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them, barely holding on to consciousness from blood loss. His sight mainly blinded from the swelling and the blood and the sweat and the spit. His flayed back is laying, laid down on the rough-hewn cross with stains from previous victims still on it. To breathe, he would lift himself up, shards of wood rubbing against his open back until his last breath, all of which we deserved, but Jesus was our substitute. Throughout history, scholars and theologians will use the word vicarious when it comes to the cross. Vicarious. What does vicarious mean? It means in the place of. It means substitute. We, we might say that a parent lives vicariously through their child when their child has success or achieves something great. The parent you know, will enjoy that success, lives through their child the reason Christians love the cross is because the cross means we get to vicariously live through Jesus now and the rewards that he has because of what he accomplished on the cross. 2 Corinthians five twenty one says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We become righteous vicariously through Jesus because Jesus was our substitute on the cross. Theologically speaking, we call this substitutionary atonement. He was our substitute who atoned for our sin. Jesus went in our place, died for us so that we can live through Jesus. There's a great story to to illustrate this. During the Civil War, a man by the name of George Wyatt was drawn uh, to go to the front of the lines. He was drafted to go to the front lines. George had a wife and six kids. So a young man named Richard Pratt offered to go in his place. He accepted and joined the ranks, bearing the name, actually had on his uniform, George Wyatt. Before long, Pratt was killed in action, and the authorities once again drafted George Wyatt into service, and George Wyatt protested, saying that he had died in the person of Pratt. He insisted to the authorities, look it up, I am dead, look it up. And sure enough, they looked through it, and George Wyatt had died in war, even though he stood right before them. And Wyatt's draft was dismissed. He had died in the person of his representative, and so George Wyatt was free to go. That's substitutionary atonement. One day, if you embrace the work of Jesus Christ, you will stand before the throne of the Almighty, and your sin card will be thrown out because there's one who died in your place. Debt is paid. You're free to live to live through Jesus the father sent the son as our substitute to pay our debt. The father and the son. Let's not forget that. Both the father and the son were involved. I think Too often we think of God being like this vengeful God who wanted to fry us all up. And the son is like, no, dad, I'll die for him. Don't do it. That's not what happened. It was their plan. And anyone who has ever held their child in their arms understands this. This cost the father just as much. Some would even argue even more. To watch someone you love be ganged up on, accused, beat, and then slaughtered. And to allow that, there must have been something the father and son wanted so badly to go through that. It was you. Scripture says, For the joy set before him, you were the joy set before them to follow through on the plan that they had already had. It's pretty incredible. I think it begs the question, do you honestly, really, truly, fully believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross? Not theologically, you know, fill in the blanket and a in church, no, do, do you really embrace the cross? See, if you're trying to be good enough for salvation, you haven't gotten the cross yet. The finished work of Jesus Christ. If you're concerned about your image and looking like you got it all together and being seen a certain way, you haven't embraced the cross yet, the finished work, because it's still about you. If you're holding on to shame, you don't fully understand the cross. If you refuse to submit, you don't know the cross. If you've got that attitude that you're just carrying around, you're not embracing the cross. If you're trying to get God to love you, you don't fully understand the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's all on the cross. If you're hiding things, if you're holding on to sin, you don't understand the cross. And I'm not saying there's not grace that fills in where we fail. What I'm saying is, is God loves you far more than you know, and not because you had a great week, not because you, know, you did this and stayed away from that. It has nothing to do with what you've done, and it's everything to do with what Jesus has done. Are you continually embracing that daily, living that out? Is that changing how you see others? Is it changing how you see yourself and the opinions that you hold on to? Is the cross changing how you're investing your life and what you get passionate about? Is the cross fueling how you lead? See, the truth is, when Jesus said, it is finished what he meant was, it's finished. I think so like growing up, I, I just saw like this line that Jesus said right before he died is like Jesus is celebrating. Okay, I'm all done. He, he's sending a message out. No, 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 it's finished. I need you to know it's finished. That means there's nothing left for you to do. You just live through me. That's why good works religion is an enemy of the cross. You're trying to be like good enough to pay God back. You can pay off a debt that's already been paid. Just slap him in the face to the work of Christ. Jesus did it all. It's finished. This is why the cross is so beautiful to us. It means it's done. Jesus lived a life you couldn't live, and he died a death you should have died. Fully God, our bridge to the Father, fully man, our advocate to the throne. He's our substitute who we now live through. Are you doing that? Are you responding to that? Each day, embracing the finished work of Jesus Christ, dragging your shame to the cross, dragging your sin to the cross, dragging your self-righteous image to the cross, and just leaving it there, knowing it is finished, the finished work of Jesus Christ. And I'm gonna live in light of that and live through Jesus. Or are you still somehow trying to look the part and earn the love and hide the sin, excuse it away, thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, would you give it a share? It goes a long way. Also, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't yet. Hey, God has something for you today. Go after it. Blessings.